Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, We're always thankful to gather together with the saints on the Lord's Day. As I prayed earlier, I, uh, you know, Keith is recovering from his hip surgery and, and Jenny is assisting him and I know she has to go back to work this week, I think is the plan uh, at, this, at this point. He's still considering her going back. So I know that's been on their heart and mind, especially Jenny as, as she makes that transition. So if you'd be in a prayer for, for them in any way you can help and encourage, that would be great. Everything went uh, as planned, from my understanding, in his recovery, though hard. I think it's been hard for him. His recovery, I think, is on track, and we are hopeful that he will return to full strength very soon. As a matter of fact, he's been doing some work even this past week, last couple of days. Uh, I've seen a few things from him, and so I'm just encouraged by that and thankful for it. But again, they need your prayer, and they need your support And as, he, as Keith recovers, and so don't don't forget about them. I know you won't. Uh, such a wonderful church body that way. You know, we need the church. We need one another. As, as we approach these crazy days that we live, in which we live, it, as we survey the culture and the world, it's, it's hard not to see the craziness. I mean, that's really all you can see in many ways. I, you know, it, I don't often, I, I don't, can't remember ever speaking actually about sports from the pulpit. Uh, you might think it's the craziness of the culture in sports, but sometimes things happen that force me to make comment, and I think there's something that's happened I think I need to make comment about. In this case, in this case, I would argue that the world of sports can help us understand what's happening in the broader culture. Just this past week, uh, if, you're, if you're a golf fan, and maybe if you're not, you've heard that the shockwaves have gone through the sports world with the merger of the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, and what's called Live Golf. Uh, the PGA Tour is an American-based entity. The DP World Tour is actually the former European Tour. And Live Golf is a new entity backed by the Saudi Arabians. Now, over the past couple of years, the Live guys from Saudi Arabia have been enticing players with the promise of big money, big prize money. Some of the biggest names in golf and politics have been sparring over the morality of taking this Saudi money because those behind the money have been accused of human rights violations. Well, it seems that the human rights problem doesn't matter anymore, that money has overwhelmed that, and that the PGA Tour and the former European Tour have chosen to take the money and run. They've chosen to take the money and merge, if you will, with Live Golf. Now, as you may expect, the, the announcement promised a capital investment from the Saudi Arabians, the the PIF, or the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund. This fund has literally splashed billions of dollars on investments at home and overseas. Now, they will invest now in men's golf to facilitate the growth and success of this new entity between Live Golf, PGA, and the European Tours. Now, the truth is, the Saudis have basically bought out professional golf. That's what's happened. Now, you may be asking yourself, why did you bring this up, Pastor? This has got nothing to do with the Word of God. Well, I'm glad you asked. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus sent out his disciples, and as part of this, he gave them the following encouragement. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, Jesus' disciples needed to be able to understand the dangers surrounding them. In the words of one commentator, he says, Christians 
are not to be gullible simpletons, end quote. That's R.T. France that said that. In our case, we need to recognize there's more at play than the simple game of golf. Those behind the merger have stated that they want to grow the game of golf globally. Now, it's the global part that concerns me. Here's what I think is happening. There is a term called sport washing. Sport washing is the practice of an organization, a government, a country supporting sport and organizing sports events as a way to improve its reputation. Now, Hitler did it. Hitler had the Olympics before Hitler did what Hitler did. In this case, people are saying the Saudis are using golf to improve their reputation, and that may be true, but I believe this is more significant than that, and it's the reason I bring it up. I believe the plan is to normalize globalization on a scale that we have never seen before. You see, globalization is Satan's ploy from the very beginning. He wants all of humanity to serve him. He knows that his only chance is, get this, unity without diversity. Unity without diversity. And he's almost accomplished it twice, just before the flood and at the Tower of Babel. In the case of golf, I believe that the globalists that are out there are wanting to show off this fantastic wealth that can be obtained if we all just link hands. I believe their aim is for this new entity is to be wildly successful, to flaunt this newfound source of wealth amongst the elite, and there will be a promise of wealth among the masses if we just join hands with the globalists, right? But that means that we have to believe what they believe. And eventually, they will marginalize and they will eliminate anyone who stands in their way. Just last week, I told you about the accusation of Christian nationalism. We see that we're seeing, what we're seeing is a clash of two very different world systems. I know this to some of you may sound like, and you may say, oh, that's just conspiracy theory, pastor. Why are you believing this stuff? Well, it very well could be, I guess. But I ask you, do you trust what's happening? You see, many will fall for it. The question is, will we be one of them? Here's the bigger question. As Christians, what are we supposed to do about it? That's the question. Well, Scripture isn't silent. Today, we're returning to our study called The King and His Glory, and we've made it to Matthew 5-7 through and the Sermon on the Mount. As we study this sermon, we're going to see the clash of two very different world systems. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the world that we live in, and the kingdom of God. In this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces the law of the kingdom. He shows his hearers that his kingdom is completely different than, his kingdom is completely different than the kingdom of this world. His, his kingdom works on a completely different set of ethics that flies in the face of this current world system that we live in. So, with that, let me pray, and let's go to the, get to the introduction of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, Lord, I do pray that we do as Christians that we understand that we are 
seeing two very different world systems. Lord, the kingdom of this world, the satanic, demonic kingdom, is clashing with your kingdom. And Father, we stand in one world. We live in one world. Yet, when we live according to your law, according to your purpose, we are living a a very different set of ethics, if you will, Lord. May we be wise as serpents, yet gentle as lambs as we as we interact in this world. And may we understand, may we understand how we are to live considering the culture that we face. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read this, the text this morning. We're in Matthew 5. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 2 through five twelve. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now in his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, the kings, we call this the king's manifesto for his kingdom, King Jesus reveals nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life. Step one, possess true poverty. Step two, persevere in learning what offends God. Step three, pursue lowliness. Step four, pursue righteousness. Step five, prefer mercy. Step six, pursue inward purity. Step seven, pursue peace. Step eight, patiently endure persecution for righteousness' sake. And step nine, patiently endure libel. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to step slowly through each of these steps. Now, as we do, I I believe that you're going to see Jesus' profound answers to what we're facing in our world today. He will show his followers how they are to respond in the face of opposition, even persecution. Now, as we get started, I want to catch you up up to date on this study. You may recall that Jesus at this point in his ministry, is in Galilee. His public ministry is now in full swing. He has been teaching, he's been preaching, and he's been healing diseases. And the crowds, according to Matthew 4, uh, 23 and 24, the crowds have been following him. Many are coming in hopes of being healed, but as they come, yet when they come, they they begin to hear his teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, you may also recall that Jesus is operating away from Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, which is the religious and political center of Israel. Now, even so, even though he's out in Galilee, away from the political center of Israel, even so, he's getting some attention from there. Now, for now, during this part of his ministry, he is able to carry on with his ministry without a lot of opposition that he will face late in the later days of, of his ministry. Now, according to Matthew 5.1, Jesus saw the crowds, the crowds that were coming, and he took the opportunity to go up on the mountain to teach. Now, the text says that his disciples came to him. Now, I would argue that then his teaching, what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, was meant for his disciples, yet we know that the crowds must have heard him as well. In Matthew 7, 28, Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished teaching, when he had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So he was teaching, I believe, his disciples, but there was also others, many others, who were listening, and they were astonished at what he was teaching. Therefore, while Jesus intended these words for his disciples, he also intended that the crowds hear them as well. Now, as such, I've called this sermon, his sermon that is, the Sermon on the Mount, I've called it the King's Kingdom Manifesto. Now, you may recall from the past two Sundays, in this Kingdom Manifesto, Jesus reveals seven difficult truths about his kingdom. Now, the first truth is found here in the introduction where he reveals his purpose for his kingdom citizens during this age. Now, his purpose for his people is difficult. There is absolutely no doubt about it because his purpose for us, for his people, clashes with the world around us. And we see that very clearly as we read through what we call the Beatitudes. Now, the world has an agenda. We have to see that the world has an agenda. And that agenda is completely different from the king's agenda. The king, our king, the king, king Jesus, that is. Now, as such, as kingdom citizens here today in this current age, we're caught in the middle of this conflict. And I'm sure many of you can, can attest. You go to work and you deal with it every day. You, deal, you watch the news and you deal with it every day. The world, has, the world has an agenda and they're wanting you to believe that agenda. And it can be very confusing for us. Now the question is, how are we to live in light of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, even as we face these great difficulties of or from our culture? According to John MacArthur, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are for believers today, marking the distinctive lifestyle that should characterize the direction, if not the perfection, of the lives of Christians in every age, in quotes. Now, most of you have heard of STEP programs, right? You know, five steps to weight loss, that type of thing. You, most of you have even heard maybe of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, there's these step programs out there. Well, in this introduction to his sermon, now I want you to understand that, that the Beatitudes is the introduction to this sermon. In that introduction, Jesus reveals what I'm saying are nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. So, we're going to look at step one today. Step one, possess true poverty. Now, before you can take 
step one, before we can take step one, we need to take some time to understand the nature of blessing. I brought this up a little bit last week, but now we're going to delve into it. So as you may be aware, and we've said it a couple of times even in this sermon, Matthew 5, 3 through 11 are commonly called the Beatitudes. The name is derived from the Latin language. It refers to a state of happiness or bliss. In this text, Jesus gives us the steps then to true happiness. Now, as such, we should recognize that in a world that is groping for happiness and fulfillment, Jesus actually shows us the way to true happiness and fulfillment. John MacArthur asked the question that may be on your mind right now. How could a message, now I want you to get this, how could a message as demanding and impossible as the Sermon on the Mount uh, be intended to make people happy? That's the question. I mean, when you look at it and you see what's demanded of you as a Christian, then you, you have to ask the question, how, is it, how can that be intended to actually make you happy? Now, you know, after all, even in this sermon, Jesus demands perfection, right? He says in Matthew 4, 5, 48, he literally says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how in the world can we be happy yet have such high standards demanded of us? Yet God desires to save us from our lostness. He desires to give us the power to obey him. And yes, he desires to make us happy. But as we will see, true happiness comes from Him and Him alone and can only come when we live according to His plan. Now, as we start looking at the Beatitudes, I think it would be good to give you some biblical background. The Beatitudes are based on a common form of expression in the poetical books of the Old Testament. Psalm 1-1 is a great example of a Beatitude. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Other examples, that's Psalm 1-1, other examples include Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and whose spirit there is no deceit. We also see another one in Psalm 40, verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust, who has not turned to the proud, nor to those who stray into falsehood. In Psalm 119, 1 and 2, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies. They seek Him with all their hearts. Psalm 128, 1, How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in His way. That's in the Old Testament. And Jesus Himself uses them frequently, as, as we will see in other places in Matthew. In Matthew eleven six, he says, Blessed is he who does not take offense to me. In Matthew thirteen sixteen, he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. And in Matthew 6, 16, 17, Jesus pronounced blessing upon Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, that, that he was in fact the Son of Man, the Son of God. Matthew 24, 46, blessed is that slave whom his master finds in doing so, being faithful, that is, when he comes. You see, we saw, as we saw in the Old Testament, an Old Testament beatitude was never 
bunch with more than two together. And as we will see in other places, and as such as the Gospel of Luke, they're limited. But in, in Matthew 5, 3 through 10, we see the longest and most carefully constructed series of Beatitudes in Scripture. Now, the question is why? Why does Jesus do this? Well, I think this is true. I think why he's done this is because I believe he intends for them to work together, the Beatitudes to work together as a unit with each one building off of the one before. And that's why we've said that they are steps. They're building. Each one of them builds from the one before. Now I want you to look at your text in Matthew 5.3. Matthew 5.3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the beginning of these Beatitudes. The meaning of the word blessed can be difficult for us to, to grasp. It can be given... It can be given the sense of happiness, which I brought up, but the problem is in our modern society, that word has the implication of our, our outward disposition. In the words of one commentator, blessed should not, be, uh, should not be understood merely in the sense of happiness, since happiness has a, is a vague idea, often with a shallow uh, emotional ring to it. You see, happiness in the world's estimation is all about you know, going on vacation and, and you know, going to Hawaii and enjoying Hawaii and, and being happy and, and taking pictures for Instagram and, and showing how, how great your time you're having. Uh, and it's in the world's in, in estimation. It's all about the things that, that make us smile and feel warm inside. Going to Disneyland, going to Disney World, those places have been touted as what? The happiest places on earth. Of course, that's an advertising ploy. They want you to think it's happy because you'll spend money if you, if you think you're going to be happy. But if you've been there, you've seen all the miserable kids and even more miserable parents, have you not? I think I've always been miserable there. Not really. Uh, yeah, I have because, I, I mean, I have to put the credit card out. But you get the point. All these people chasing the fleeting hope of some moment of happiness, Right? Even if they find happiness for a day or two, it'll surely go away when the bill comes. You know, as, as for countries, Finland, I don't know if you know this, but Finland is the Disneyland of countries. Finland is consi consistently ranked as the happiest country by the World's Happiness Report. You know there's a World Happiness Report. That's, that's amazing. But this ha happiness index is based on six key factors, social support, Income, health, freedom, generosity, and the absence of corruption. But what we see, though, is that those things are mainly focused on our outward situation, are they not? Well, blessed could also have the idea of fortunate. So the idea of happiness, but also the idea of fortunate. But that idea has been, has been blurred in common thought. You know, lottery winners and sports stars are considered to be fortunate, are they not? But these people can be some of the most unhappy people on earth. I mean, lottery winners, I mean, they end up being just miserable because everybody wants money from them. And the word could also mean, the word blessed could also mean blissful. Again, this idea has been twisted. Today we see movies that give us a picture of this carefree lifestyle where we frolic in the meadows from sunup to sundown and we're blissful, right? But that doesn't fit reality in this world, does it not? I mean, it doesn't fit reality in the sin-fallen world that we live in. Are we ever really blissful in that way? So the question is, what does blessed really mean? 
Well, happiness can capture it in part because it is the state of true happiness. I even said that. I mean, that God wants us to be happy. It can have the idea of fortunate because we do receive blessings from God. It can denote blissful because of the inner contentment that comes from God's blessing. But I would argue that to be blessed then means to receive God's approval and His favor and, and even His endorsement. It, is, it describes a person who is singularly favored by God. The term truly has to do with being inwardly content no matter our circumstances. It doesn't matter. I can be content even at Disneyland. Which is hard to me, but you get the picture. God desires His people, God desires for His children to enjoy the state, a state of well-being that doesn't depend on our current circumstances, good or bad. The Apostle Paul exemplifies this attitude in Philippians 4.11-13. He says this, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This morning we were in... We were in uh, we were in our equipping class, and we were looking at 2 Timothy 2, and, and in 2 Timothy 2, Paul was actually in chains, and, and he's saying here that he's learned to be content even in that type of situation. Then he goes on in verse 12, this is Philippians 4, 11, 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance, and any and, and, any and all things I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And if you've learned the hermeneutics class this morning, you know that we need to, in order to understand that verse, you need to understand the context. And what, what Paul is saying is, is that it doesn't matter what his circumstances are, that it that doesn't matter what God is putting him through, that he can do all things, that he can be content uh, because of him who strengthens him. In Paul's case, he's learned to in, be inwardly content no matter the difficulty. In other words, he has an inward joy even in the face of great difficulty and even in the face of sorrowful situations. Not, pe- not many people in this world have come to a place, have truly come to a place of, in life where they can be fully content no matter their circumstances. Said another way, Paul doesn't derive contentment from anything outside of himself other than God himself. It's an amazing, amazing statement. So you need to recognize then, you need to recognize that the source of blessing is God Himself. I believe it's helpful to recognize that the word is often used in Scripture to refer to God. The, the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 66:20, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. In Psalm 68:35, David announces, Oh God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and might to the people. Blessed be God. Similarly, similarly David's son Solomon says, Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel who alone works wondrous deeds. That's Psalm 72, 18. In 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul uses the same term to describe uh, the, the glory of the blessed God. In 1 Timothy 6.15, uh, he says that, that God is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That would be directly addressed to the Lord Jesus. Blessedness, then, is a fundamental characteristic of God. And I think it could be said that God is truly happy and content with and in Himself. 
In other words, he doesn't lack anything that will make him happy. It is God's nature to be happy and blessed. Truly, he doesn't need anything. That's what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 25, as though he, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything outside of, outside of himself. So, so then he is then the source of all blessing. He is that source, and you need to understand that. Then the question is, who, who can be blessed? Who can be blessed then? Well, put simply, true blessing is only characteristic of us when we partake in God's nature. It has been said, there is no blessedness, no perfect contentedness, and joy of the sort of which Jesus speaks here, except that which comes from a personal relationship to him, through whose magnificent promises we become partakers of the divine nature. End quote. It is only by having a personal relationship with Jesus that we can partake in his blessedness. 1 Peter 3 and 4, Peter says that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Here's the point that you can, you can partake in his divine nature, but the only way you can partake in his divine nature, the only way you can truly understand the blessing that Jesus speaks of in these verses in the Sermon on the Mount is to be a believer. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, you may be able to, if you are an unbeliever, you may be able to get some sense of these blessings. But you can't fully understand what they truly mean in the life of the believer. You have no way of knowing how the Apostle Paul could speak of contentment when he's in chains. You can have no way of knowing how he could have a thorn in the flesh and still say how much he loves Christ and how much he's yielded to him. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul's contentment, his happiness, was supernatural. Let me say it a different way. It didn't come from any natural source. It didn't come from his circumstances. His contentment was based on the fact that he had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And his personal relationship with Jesus was tangible and based on what Jesus had done for him and through him. Jesus had, in fact, supernaturally and miraculously transformed him and given him a divine nature. Jesus had, in fact, put him into service to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus had, in fact, showed him the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in his life. And therefore, Paul's life was a living reality of what it means to receive God's blessing and to be used by him. I love Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. He says, it is a trustworthy statement saying, that is, and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. So he's saying right there, I am the foremost of sinners. I don't deserve any of this. Yet for this reason, verse 16, I was shown mercy so that in me as 
the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Here's the point that Paul understood his position for before a holy God and everything that God had given him was in fact blessing. Therefore, Paul could have this incredible contentment. He says something very similar in Ephesians 3, 7, and 8. He says, he says he was made a minister according to God's grace, which was given to him according to the working of God's power. He says this, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Here's the point. Paul had come at, to the end of himself he, had come to, he was come to a point where he was spiritually bankrupt, and we're going to see that that's Jesus' point in Matthew 5, 3. So everything from that point forward was entirely blessing from God. So let's sum up what we've seen thus far. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, let me give you my best shot at defining what it means to be blessed. Blessing is the state of happiness in our inward selves. It comes from the acknowledgement of the reality of how fortunate we are to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Because of, we, of our understanding of how fortunate we are, it produces an inner bliss and contentment that comes from recognizing all that God has done for us and that no circumstance or set of circumstances can change our happiness or contentment in Christ. That's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. So who is the source of blessing? God himself is the source of this blessing. We can only be truly blessed by partaking in His divine nature. As we study these Beatitudes, we could read them, God blesses the poor in spirit. God blesses those who mourn. It changes everything when we understand that these blessings come from God Himself. And as such, we are able to partake in God's character. So then the question becomes, who are the blessed? Well, the blessed are those who have believed in the promises of Christ and are living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit, living within them with an ever-increasing understanding of what He is accomplishing through them. Have you felt that in your own life? That you've believed in the promises of Christ and you're living in this present reality that the Holy Spirit is within you and that there's this ever-increasing understanding of what He's accomplishing through you. That's what, that describes Paul. Paul understood who he was in Christ. Paul understood what Christ was doing with him. Paul understood the reality of the Holy Spirit living in him. Therefore, he could say, I am content, I'm content in any and every situation. Now that we understand the nature of blessing, I need to show you one other truth about the Beatitudes. And I've already kind of alluded to this. They are progressive. Now, you may have guessed this with my proposition statement. I compared them to a step program. I said this earlier. And I don't want that to cheapen Jesus' words because, you know, these step programs are kind of, kind of cheesy sometimes. But, but to point out that each of these 
we, I, I use this to point out that each of these Beatitudes are steps that build upon the previous ones. As we'll see, Jesus had a, I believe Jesus had a progression in mind as he gave these to his disciples. They're not random proverbs or, or bits of wisdom. They're, they have a logical order. I can't say this any better than John MacArthur. He says, being poor in spirit reflects the right attitude we should have to our sinful condition, which should lead us to mourn, which should lead us to be meek and gentle, which lead, should lead us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and having a peacemaking spirit. All those things build on each other. A Christian who has all those qualities will be far above the level of the world that his life will rebuke the world, which will bring persecution from the world and be a light to the world, end quote. With that, let's look back at Matthew 5, 3. Jesus says you must be poor in spirits. Well, that, well, to define what this means, we need to look at it from several different angles. First, we must answer the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirits? Uh, the, the word translated poor has the idea of being a beggar. This has the idea of total destitution. Perhaps our best understanding of this Greek word comes from Luke 16.20. Jesus described uh, in Luke, in Luke 16.20 a, a man named Lazarus. He described him as a poor man who was laid at a rich man's gate. He says, but a poor man, Lazarus, was laid at his gate covered with sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, what you may get a picture of is a man who won't even look up for you to see his face. He is so poor, he has one hand begging for anything that might come his way, but he will not even look at you because he's so destitute. That's what this word has, or gives the, the, word, the picture of the word. This is not simply poor, but you might call this begging poor. The beggar has completely come to the end of himself. He has no ability to help himself other than to beg. Even in that, we picture him cowering in a dark corner, ashamed to be recognized, hoping for any morsel that may come his way. Now, there's another word, another Greek word used for poor in the New Testament. I think it's helpful to contrast these two words to better understand why Jesus is using this particular word in 5.3. The other word is used to describe ordinary poverty. This word describes a person who has at least some resources. They, they may have some food and, and they may have shelter, but they're poor. Jesus uses that, that word, that particular word, to describe the widow who, who placed her meager resources into the temple, temple treasury. She was clearly a poor woman. She was clearly poor, but she had some means, some resources, because she was able to put in the two lepta. But in... Luke 6.20, Luke uses the word used by Matthew in Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor. So the question then, the question is, what does Jesus actually intend here? Does he mean that we need to be economically destitute to inherit the kingdom? Uh, I, I don't think that's what he intends here. As a matter of fact, I think he has, he don't, he doesn't have, I don't think he has economic wealth in view at all. Now, we need to acknowledge that the fact that Luke does simply say, blessed are the poor. But the question is, does Jesus mean that we should go and give everything away and just be poor beggars? Well, I don't think so. 
In other places, the Bible actually teaches us how to handle our wealth as Christians. Even in, even in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.42, Jesus instructs his disciples to be giving. But that presupposes that we have something to give, does it not? Matthew 5.42, give it to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So, so you, there, there are Christians who have money, who have resources. And Jesus acknowledges that. James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, taught that the rich man ought to boast in his humiliation. I take it to mean that, that, that he's talking about the brother with means ought to boast in his humiliation because, because worldly, men, worldly men with wealth generally boast in their riches. So we're not to be that way. So, but again, that presupposes that there are going to be some Christians who have, who have resources. Last year, we did a study in Philemon, and, and it's most likely that Philemon was a, was a wealthy yet godly man. He was able to open his home up to the church. The biggest warning against wealth in Scripture actually has to do with trusting your wealth. It has to do with, with putting your, your faith in that wealth. We must not, as Christians, trust in wealth. We, we should recognize the the distractions and the, the temptations that come with being wealthy. Therefore, we shouldn't, we shouldn't pursue the love of money or, pursue, or, or we shouldn't love money and we shouldn't pursue ungodly gain. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, or 6, 19, and again in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, Paul warns, but those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a snare and, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Then he says this, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by aspiring to it, that is the love of money, the, 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 the pursuit of money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we need to understand that there is great danger in material wealth. You see, the material, materially poor don't have the dis distraction of pursuing material gain. They don't have the distraction of protecting all their goods from moth and rust. But there have been rich, godly rich people and there have been godly poor people. Truly, that's a matter of the heart, no matter how fat or skinny your wallet. So clearly, Jesus must be talking about something else. Look back at your Bibles in Matthew 5, 3. Notice that Jesus says, poor in spirits. So this has to do with being spiritually destitute or spiritually bankrupt. Ultimately, this describes a person who has come to the end of themselves. They acknowledge and declare in their hearts that they are spiritually destitute or bankrupt. In other words, they confess their utter unworthiness and complete dependence upon the Lord Jesus. They have come to know there is nothing good in them. And they are in need of someone else to save them. They have come to recognize their lostness. They have come to recognize their hopelessness. And they have come to recognize their helplessness. And they've come to the realization that no, other, no one other than God himself can save them. They've come to see that, the, that they have sinned and fallen short. They sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
they recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, all men, women, and children, everyone who lives, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are spiritually bankrupt. All are destitute. All are beggars. Whether they see it or they don't. Therefore, they have, become, they have come to be a beggar before God. James Montgomery Boyce says, To be poor in spirit is to be poor in the inward man, not in the out, outward circumstances. Consequently, to be poor in spirit is to recognize one's poverty spiritually before God. End quote. Thomas Watson simply says, poverty of spirit is a kind of self-annihilation. A few weeks ago, I pointed out the tax collector in Luke 18, 10 through 14. You may, you may recall the story, Luke 18, we, we went through it a few weeks ago. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. You see, that man was prideful. That man was exalting himself. You see, he didn't need God because he was a legend in his own mind. But then you have the lowly tax collector. This man was completely different. He wouldn't even stand with anyone else. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Beloved, doesn't this remind you of a beggar begging for crumbs that may fall from someone's hand here's what's amazing tax collectors were wealthy men right i mean that's why they became tax collectors they were wealthy men that's why they were hated because they were taking money from the people yet this man was a spiritual beggar this was the picture of a man who had come to the end of himself be merciful to me he wouldn't even look to heaven. Be merciful to me. He had come to the end of himself. He knew that the only source of blessing, the only source of true blessing would come from God himself. And that he didn't deserve any of it. So, the question is, how do we know we are poor in spirit? In other words, how do we know that we are like the tax collector and not like that Pharisee? Well, we need to understand this is the genuine response to the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's a genuine sense of one's true poverty. In other words, this is not an act like, like the Pharisee. You may, you may notice as we read through the account, everything he did was about self. It was all about the things he had done. He had performed the works of the law, but the tax collector, on the other hand, had a true sense of who he was before a holy God. He truly understood his lostness. He truly understood his hopelessness. He truly understood his helplessness. And this is a true humility that the Lord loves. As David proclaims in Psalm 51, 16, for I do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with, for you do not, this is David talking, or uh, 
This is Samuel talking, I think. But for you do not delight in sacrifice, maybe David. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, it is David, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite God, or heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, that's what God does not despise. You see, true brokenness before God is not about what you're doing to make yourself look good for God or for men. It's about having a truly humble and contrite heart before the Lord. Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, 2, Yahweh declares, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I love the words of Thomas Watson. Humility is the sweet spice that grows from the poverty of spirits. End quote. I could give you a questionnaire to declare whether you're humble and contrite of spirit. I would, if I did, I would ask you things like, are you praying on independence on him? Are you trembling at his word? Are you living in obedience to him? And, and obviously those questions are helpful in knowing whether you've come to this place. But I'm going to tell you that you can fake those things. You can mask them even from your own self. In the words of Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all else and, who, and is desperately sick. Who can know it? So again, how do you know that you've come to this place of being poor in spirit? Well, D.A. Carson puts it well. He says, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. As such, it is the deepest form of Repentance. End quote. Therefore, I'll just ask you one simple question. I won't give you this questionnaire. I'll just ask you one simple question. And I believe it's the same question that Jesus has implied in this verse, Matthew 5, 3. Outside of the things you're doing, prayer, Bible reading, obeying His commands, outside of those things, have you come to the point of seeing yourself as a spiritual beggar being reminded of what that looks like, hopeless, helpless, and lost, begging God to have mercy on your soul. Have you come to that point? That's the question that must be answered. So then the question becomes about this text, what will happen when we are poor in spirit? We'll look back. Jesus says, for theirs... Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The question is, do you want to enter God's kingdom? Well, Jesus says, being poor in, the, in spirit is the starting point of salvation. Being poor in spirit is the starting point of salvation. You might say that it, this is the trailhead of our walk with Christ. It's the entry point into the kingdom of heaven. In the words of, again, John MacArthur, being poor in spirit is the first beatitude because humility must precede everything else. No one can receive the kingdom until he recognizes that he is unworthy of the kingdom. End quote. Well, if you can hear my voice today, and you've never come to this place of spiritual bankruptcy, you've never come to the place where you cry out for mercy, 
where you have come to the place where you know that there is nothing in yourself that is good. There's nothing in yourself that could commend yourself or commend you to a holy God. There's nothing in every way you fall short. In every way you see sin. If you haven't come to that place, I want you to know today is the day of salvation. It's interesting. Luke 19, just after that, the, the story that Jesus gave about the, about the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector that we just heard. A man named Zacchaeus, who was a, a tax collector, wanted to see Jesus. He climbed up this tree to see Jesus. And he comes to know him. I mean, miraculously comes to know him. He comes to the end of himself. He, he, he's spiritually bankrupt, and he realizes it. He knows it. I love, I love what Jesus says. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. Today, today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come to know him, if you don't already. Jesus wants you to come to Him. He wants you to believe in Him. He wants you to know that He alone can save your soul. He wants you to know, don't let another day go by. Don't let another day. Don't let another day go by. If you're here today and you know Him, and you have come to that point, that point where the, that you're a beggar, just rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice that you're in Him. Rejoice that you'll be forever with Him in heaven. Oh Lord, we thank You this morning. Praise You. Lord, I pray as we consider the Sermon on the Mount, as we consider these Beatitudes, I pray that You would just give us a wonderful understanding I pray for those here that don't know you. You know who they are, Lord. I pray that they would come to the end of themselves. They stop trusting in self and start looking to you. Lord, I pray for those who do know you. They would walk with you, trusting in you and you alone. Not putting trust in their flesh. Father, that they would understand that we're always poor beggars looking to you. We thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.